Good morning. How are we doing? Hi. Hi. <laughs> Time to see. Hi. <laughs> Eli is a friend of my, uh, used to be best friend's um, son. And actually, in my talk, I was going to mention, I'll mention it now, um, when, Mickey, Mickey was di- when Mickey was dying, Mickey was my friend, um, Sam's mom, Eli's friend, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. I was just thinking about it last night as I was going over my talk. She died when she was 52. Well, we were both 52. Same, we were the same. She was a little bit old, she, she was a little bit older than I was. She, I was 52. I'm 72 now. So she, she's been dead. Don't tell me. <laughs> 20 years, is that right? 20 years. And so seems like lifetime, many lifetimes ago, 20 years. And it also seems to me really young now, 52, to die of 52. Young. She died of cancer, breast cancer. Uh, One of the last things she said before she died was, she said, love is everything. She was a writer, and she was an extraordinarily creative person and could have done almost anything. We used to play music together a lot when I was a kid, when we were kids. And uh, she chose writing, which I always thought was the lesser of the (laughs) various art things that she could have done. Because because I was the music person, and then I I played with her less and less as she got more and more involved with writing. Disaster. <laughs> so, um, you know, there were many things, of course, that a person can say, I suppose, as their last words. And of all the things that she could have said, what she did say was that the most important thing was love. Everything else really falls away. And what you're left with at the end is the depth, really, of the relationships that you've cultivated in your life. Starting with yourself, you know, and relationships. And, and the older I get, the clearer it is, it seems to me, what she said was true. So um, I wanted to talk a little bit about relationships today, and also I wanted to talk about it because it has something to do with uh, ceremonies that you know the community is going to be helping put on in a month. So um, I guess the other thing I wanted to say about it was that um, you know our practice life. Sometimes we can think that, you know, it has to do with insight and, you know, 
enlightenment and I don't know what actually anymore. <laughs> I mean, to me, the reason I say that is because to me it has less and less to do with acquiring, you know, and more and more to do with letting go and just being the life we've already been given. You know, so and, and in fact, I suppose you can say that the reason we practice is to become, to be able to become or feel. We already are <laughs> intimate with the life the way it is, but to feel that intimacy and to feel that connectedness, we can say, is uh, why we practice. And in that, of course, in that intimacy, we know very deeply that there is no real separation. And if we can do that with ourselves first, and then in relationship, we have a chance to create maybe a society that understands that as well, which is, I think, one of the most, if not the most important offering that Buddhism has to give to the, I don't even know what to call it anymore, (laughs) the sadly tragic, you know, sometimes funny, disastrous, deluded, You know, I don't have to tell you. It's pretty loony out there. I saw a note on on uh, about you know the, the people that it wasn't a terrorist thing. It was a hate crime by a person who was pretty disturbed, mentally disturbed person who grew up in a house, abusive home. You know, it's, it's not like a mystery why these things happen. So you can feel as much, you know, pain for him as for the people who are no longer with us. But anyway, I saw a note that somebody left on a memorial that's being... Uh, I don't know which memorial, anyway, a memorial. And it said, I am so sorry, so sorry. And then it had another line. And then it was, it was signed by an evangelical Christian. So, you know, it's not nothing that we walk on a path of heart, really. We're all about the bodhisattva way. So sometimes we think it's about, you know, gaining whatever idea we have about spirituality, but really it's about opening the heart. It's a path of heart. And, you know, we can feel the kind of... um, dried, crusted. I mean, I I remember very well that feeling, this kind of dry, crusted, or sometimes thick (laughs) wall that we've built sometimes, some of us, most of us, I think, around our heart, you know, as a protective mechanism. Because when we were young, when we were children, 
we didn't sometimes, you know. Even if our parents loved us sometimes, we just didn't feel the love in the way that we needed to feel it sometimes. And sometimes, you know, maybe there wasn't a kind of a clear love that was being given. Now, so very early on as children, we developed these strategies and protections and whatever. Long, long time ago as children to just try to survive and get by in whatever the, you know, condition, familial situation we found ourselves. So it's not a surprise that after being hurt, you know, however many times, we've decided that the best way, (laughs) we don't decide, you know, we don't decide it intellectually. We decide to, you know, brick by brick, hurt by hurt, fear by fear, we build this wall, we build this gate. And on the gate, you know, it says things like, I'll let you love me after you pass this test. (laughs) Things like that. I'll let you love me, but I'm going to throw away the key. And unless you find the key, without giving you any hints whatsoever, (laughs) you satisfy my needs, which I'm not going to tell you about. (laughs) Maybe I'll open the door. certainly very difficult. Um, it's, it's difficult in our families. It's difficult at work. It's difficult on the subway. And it's especially difficult nowadays in intimate relationships with a person, you know, you do, is at this, uh, you, you know, sometimes it's called you do the dailies with. Have you heard that phrase? It's a great phrase. <laughs> Someone you do the dailies with. It's very difficult to maintain sometimes an open heart day after day. <laughs> day after boring day. The same person. but you know skipping to kind of the end of my talk but you know if you've ever seen a relationship of 50 or 60 years people who have actually stuck with it and have grown together in that way it's a beautiful thing it's a really beautiful thing it's my belief, and I've, I don't know if this is true at all, but I think like, you know, they're two separate people. And then as you work through relationship, um, 
which I'll get into in a little bit, but as you work through a relationship, a kind of a third, so like this is one person, this is the other person, and then there's this overlapping like third thing that develops, and it's, you know, half of you and half of this person creates this kind of third thing, and if, if, this, if they've been together for a long time, this thing is almost more forward than the other two, except when they're not together, you know, then their other thing is foremost. But when they're together, so when this dies, when this one, one of them dies, half of this is gone. So half of this person, the person that they are together with their mate, that whole part of them dies. They don't understand that sometimes. You know, they think they're just mourning their partner who has died, but that's not true. They're mourning their partner who has died, and they have to mourn the part of themselves that's no longer there. It too has died. That's why sometimes they die very quickly. They don't know that. And you know, in order the truth, in order to build this third thing, if if both people grow, in order to build this third thing, what really has to, in these two people, die is their ego self, their conditioning. In order to make this third thing really work in a way that is that produces people who are able to deeply meet in a broad spectrum of connection, the conditioned parts of these, <laughs> I hope this is not being recorded, because I have not a clue what I'm talking about. Uh, <laughs> unless I play finger puppet, you know, somehow. Um, you know, the ego self, the conditioned parts of ourselves, need to be, need to die. And and relationship is a, uh, there's so many ways I could, could go, but. Relationship is a crucible. The way I think about it is like it's a relationship is, is the lay paths monastic container. <laughs> I do, I feel that way. And the truth of it is that you have to make a commitment on your side alone, not depending on whether the other person is committed or not. If you want to be in the relationship, you make a commitment on your side alone, no matter what happens with the other person. You know? And oftentimes the other person might really not be able to be in a relationship. If you keep growing, oftentimes, well, I don't know about oftentimes, but, but certainly it's been my experience speaking with many, 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 many people that if you keep growing, oftentimes if your partner is not growing, or even your people you work with at work or your friends, you know, if you begin doing the precepts and waking up out of you know, uh, habitually hurting other people, when you begin to notice that that's what you've been doing, 
And for example, you stop gossiping at work. Suddenly it's like, oh my God, you know, what kind of a relationship do I have with these friends? Is it really based on just talking about other people? How other people are, you know, stupid in this way or that way or yeah. And 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 those friendships will be will be lost. And same thing in relationship sometimes. So sometimes I think, you know, now, certainly nowadays, divorce is not necessarily a bad thing, sometimes. Especially if you don't have kids. Might be just the right thing to do. Some people learn in serial, mono- they grow in serial monogamy. I've seen that. Anyway, let's see, back to my, where are we here? So in this container, uh, whether at work, whether in your friendships, <clears throat> the, the relationship acts as a mirror. You know, we think, we're told, the advertisement is that if you meet the right person and you connect with the right person, you know, you will be happy ever after. Right? How many people that's their experience? <laughs> I don't see a lot of hands going out. <laughs> because relationship is not about making us happy. It's about waking up. I mean, that's what I suggest. (laughs) And, you know, of course it's going to be that way. Leslie and I used to laugh about when we used to um, talk with people at Tassajara. At Tassajara, it's, it's easy to fall in relationship with another person. It's very very supportive, very intimate place. And um, anyway, it's easy to do that. And uh, when somebody would come and tell us how perfect this other person is for them, and you're already laughing. (laughs) Because the first part has everything to do with sexuality and the way nature, you know, shuts down your your intellect. Right? And everything that the person does, their, their idiosyncrasies and their, their, are so cute in the beginning. It's, you just seem like it's just this perfect match. Right? And Leslie and I, were, were, when we talked about we don't even listen to them for six months. You know? <laughs> let's, let's start talking when things get a little bumpy. And it will get bumpy. And why does it get bumpy? Because each person comes to the relationship. Each time you're you know, with another person, not even in an intimate relationship, but just in a meeting of two people, each person brings with them an entire universe 
of assumptions, gigantic expectations, you know, rights and wrongs about the way to do basically everything, from how you do money, education, what your values are, when you should get up in the morning, you know, whether or not it's okay to leave the dishes in the sink for a little bit until I will do it, just give me some space. I remember very clearly at, um, when I was at San Francisco Zen Center, we were having dinner one time, and we were having a, <laughs> you could say either a heated conversation, the table was a heated conversation, or an intense conversation, or an intimate conversation, depending on the different people sitting around, the, or an awful conversation, depending on the people sitting around the table. And one of the people afterwards was really upset with me. (laughs) And the reason is, is because when I grew up in my family, we, every Friday night, we sat around a table and we had these intense, you know, intimate conversations. And the way we had them was, we just overlapped. You know, as soon as you had an idea that you thought you could, you know, back up, either with reasoning or emotion, either way, (laughs) you you were allowed to just jump right in and see if you could make yourself heard. (laughs) That's how I grew up. But the person who was really upset with me grew up in a very different household where people were polite. (laughs) You know, and her definition of polite and intimate looked nothing like what my situation of intimate conversation was about. (laughs) She was really upset. You know, it's really interesting. We're just who we are. And it's really okay. It's really okay for me to think that intimate conversation is this overlapping event. And it was really okay for her to be sure that I was totally rude you know, and I should have waited until the person completely finished. I'm not being sarcastic. <laughs> Only a little bit. Completely finished her train of thought before I, you know, jumped in with my idea. I obviously wasn't listening. <laughs> anyway. So, you know, in the beginning, when uh, we're in a relationship and a person is treating us nicely the way we think that being treated nicely is supposed to go, we think they're the best thing. What do they call it? Um, in the 20s? The sliced bread. Sliced bread. Sliced bread, is it? Piece of sliced bread? Because I guess they invented <laughs> bread slicing at that time. <laughs> the best thing since bread and butter or something like that. You know, and then if they do something that they might not even know is completely hurtful to you, let alone rude, right? They might not even know that. Then you think, Jesus Christ, you know, how did I, you know, end up with this nincompoop? You know? So there are these two universes that come together, and in the beginning. So I wanted to go through some, some ways of practicing with this that you'll recognize. 
So I'm sure you'll, you know, when, when we're hurt in the beginning, when we're pretty much not, uh, when we're pretty deluded, when we're neurotic, you know, somebody hurts us and we are furious. Or, you know, so one way of doing it is making a drama. First of all, we totally believe that we're right. We totally believe that we've been hurt and it's their fault, right? And we do our default things, which sometimes is to leave, Sometimes it's very effective. <laughs> that was my, I think that was my thing. I think I probably, I just, no, also I got really angry. I was very angry. Dependent, you know, who the person was, I suppose. Um, anyway, we completely, we take no responsibility. We're completely bought into whatever, we completely are identified with this emotion thought, and we dump. practice there, so the relationship is unsteady, of course, because right? the other person is doing this as well. <laughs> there could even be lots of passion and real love there. But when our triggers, when we're triggered, we go into this completely old, conditioned way of surviving, think that we're surviving to protect ourselves. So of course the relationship is, you know. And then you have these endless processing discussions. You know. Sometimes, my, my experience sometimes with guys, which in this case I much prefer, you know, sometimes um, guys don't have to talk about, you know, do this process thing that women do endlessly. Sometimes That's why lesbian relationships are just, you know, because, <laughs> yeah, yuck, yuck, yuck. <laughs> Sometimes guys' way sometimes much better. You know, they just instead of having to go through all this stuff, they just say, "Let's go play pool." Okay, <laughs> and we go play pool, and it's like, and we we reconnect slowly. You know, we just kind of reconnect. It's kind of neat. And of course, if women don't know that, they miss it. You know, they just totally miss that the guy is actually making up. You know. No, we have to talk about this and then this. Anyway, the practice at this level is basically just to stick it out, just stay there. You know, just don't go away. Just try to, you know, admit what's happening. It's kind of like the same thing. When our big delusion monster happens and we've lost, just admit that you've lost and you get beaten up and so on and so forth. And when it's over, you get back on the practice. So that's the practice pretty much in the beginning. Hmm. Having started my talk, and it's over. Um, I'll, I'll keep, can, next week, I'll, or when I'm talking next, I'll finish. Um, this is a quote from Toni Morrison. Does everybody know Toni Morrison? African-American, beautiful woman, big woman, beautiful gray hair, Nobel Prize winner, writer, Toni Morrison. I think this is from Beloved, but I'm not sure. No, it might be from The Bluest Eyes, I think. You think, because he doesn't love you, that you are worthless, 
you think that because he doesn't want you anymore, that he is right, that his judgment and opinion of you are correct. If he throws you out, then you are garbage. You think he belongs to you because you want to belong to him. Don't. It's a bad word, belong. Especially when you put it with somebody you love. Love shouldn't be like that. Did you ever see the way the clouds love a mountain? They circle all around it. Sometimes you can't even see the mountain for the clouds. But you know what? You go up to the top, and what do you see? It's head. The clouds never cover the head. His head pokes through because the clouds let him. They don't wrap him up. They let him keep his head high, free, with nothing to hide him or bind him. You can't own a human being. You can't lose what you don't own. Suppose you did own him. Could you really love somebody who was absolutely nobody without you? You really want somebody like that? Somebody who falls apart when you walk out the door? You don't, do you? Neither does he. You're turning over your whole life, your whole power to him. Your whole life, girl. And if it means that little to you, that you can just give it away, hand it to him, then why should it mean any more to him? If you can't value you more than you value, he can't value you more than you value yourself. And so that's a good description of the kind of first level of how we relate. We give over. This is also what happens to a teacher, you know. People give over to the teacher the the power to say whether you're an okay person or not. I never, never take that power. I don't want it. It's not good. So in the second kind, what happens if we stay in the relationship and keep going? Inevitably, whatever this particular pattern is will happen again and again and again and again. And if you don't figure it out in this relationship and you think another relationship is going to be better, guess what? The same pattern again. So finally, if we are growing and paying attention, and I would say sitting meditation and being mindful, because all of that is the base of all of this, we begin to see patterns. This is the first little taste of freedom. We begin to be able to be not so identified with whatever these karmic emotion thoughts are, and we can see them as patterns. We can see what the other person does that triggers us. So it's not about the other person. It's about our trigger. And that trigger can be triggered in other places as well. It's just that in intimate relationship, of course, it's magnified. (laughs) And we begin to take responsibility for our own behavior, 
and begin to know that if we continually blame the other person for what is happening, that we never will grow out of this pattern. We will never see it deeply enough. And that's the first turn in practice. The first turn in practice is being willing to be fully responsible for whatever your behavior is. It is not caused by the other person. If you flip out, it's your event. The next thing I wanted to say was, um, not this, this other thing. You know, I'm, I'm talking about one particular maybe pattern, but really what happens in relationship is there are two people working on not just one pattern, but you know, there are dozens of, maybe, maybe there are five really deep fundamental ones, but each person is working on their own thing. So this person might be working on this pattern, and this person might be working on this pattern, and this person might be, you know, with this pattern, up here in that person's growth. You know what I mean? But let's say with, with, you know, with some other pattern, this person is down here in relationship to that person, to that pattern, right? So relationship is like this very, it's not a linear thing. It's a very fluid event. But at this point, we see the pattern clearly. We're not nearly as identified with it. And we feel the pain, finally, of what it does to the other person, to your you know, partner, and the pain that it causes you. And if we really see it clearly, we're able to get below this, any kind of superficial um, manifestation of this pattern to the core of why this pattern is really triggering for us. And some of these core patterns, these more superficial patterns, as we go through this event with another person, can kind of drop off and really do go away. But some of these really deeper patterns, we have to walk through them superficially, then a little bit deeper and deeper, and really some of them really, really deep. It takes a long time to get really down so that the body is involved and releases some of these really deep ingrained conditionings. So at this level, we see really clearly, but we don't yet have the strength to stop the behavior. So it's a very awkward situation where we see something really clearly. We know we're not supposed to do it. We know it's going to cause harm. We know it comes from a place of complete delusion, and we do it anyway. There has to be some humor. (laughs) Maybe it's enough for today. talk a little bit more about it next time. I think one thing maybe I'll leave you with is, is that, you know, we're all doing our best all the time. 
<laughs> even when we make really egregious you know, behaviors. And there are no guarantee, there are no rules in relationship that I know of. All relationships are different. And there's no guarantee. You know, sometimes you're so angry at your partner that you're ready to leave. You know, they've done this same behavior over and over and over again, and I'm just done. If you do this one more time, I am out of here. You just don't know. You really feel that way, genuinely. So there are no guarantees. You do the best you can on your side, and you keep showing up. And if the other person is there and meets you, there's just an enormous gratitude. That's why in the monastery, sometimes you end up being friends with the person you've had the most difficulty with. Because if they're practicing on their side, they will come back. And if you get through that pattern, whatever that difficulty was, there's a gi- just an enormous love you have for that person because they're stuck with you. It's a big gift to be able to do that with another human being. And when we work on ourselves deeply enough, when we really are in touch with our own fundamental openness of heart, which really is there, and we can, the the love that we have for ourselves and other people comes from a place of unconditioned openness. That's what, that is what you feel. Tremendous gratitude for every single person. And when you meet them, you're meeting yourself. You're meeting the mystery that we both are. If you can walk with another person, to that place for the both of you. It's a, it's a tremendous gift. It's not easy. It's not guaranteed. And it's a lot of work. And this is what we do in practice. Not just this much I did, I think. Not just in relationship. That's why Sangha is so important. Because if someone else in Sangha is willing to be with you through all of your Mishagas, all of your kookiness, and they stick with you, you know, then when you know you reach some little bit of maturity. You know, you look around and you, you're you deeply in love, really, <laughs> with the people who travel that path with you. 
That's what sangha is. That's the possible intimacy with the people you're practicing with. That's why it's so important. Come and sit together. Like what we're doing, uh, we're having, I think you know, I've said it enough, um, these ceremonies that we're going to have starting on the 8th to the 18th. And lots of people in the community are able to support that happening. You know, and that's, a, that's one of the ways, working together like that is one of the ways that we in Sangha bump up against each other and learn who we are and practice together. I remember both Trungpa and Richard Baker, especially, well, both of them, they used to throw the community into these wildly inappropriate projects. <laughs> you know? I remember one time, Richard Baker, there was this theater company that came through um, San Francisco. It was an improv company, a Jewish improv company, something. And he really liked the idea, and they couldn't find a place to do it. So he said, we had a big dining room. So he said, why don't you guys, the theater company, why don't you come to Zen Center, and we'll make a theater for you in the dining room. <laughs> we were listening to him say that, and then inside I'm going, what the fuck? You know, are you kidding me? And like, tomorrow? <laughs> and so we did. We built this stage and the curtains and everything and lighting and all this stuff. And it was wild, you know. Of course, people got upset with each other and so on and so forth. But in Sangha, if you have some amount of trust that the other person is looking at their stuff on their side, you know, you can manage to get through it. You know, it's heroic, really, what we do. Crazy, wildly heroic. But, you know, if we do it with some consciousness, that we know that this is what we're doing, there's some, you know, it helps a lot. So thank you for listening, and uh, if you can, you know, Laura is organizing. She's the or- organizer. <laughs> Trying to keep Greg away from all of it. I don't want him to know. So just, uh, you know, if you're interested in doing something, there's lots to do, just contact Laura, and she'll fit you in somewhere or another. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.